life was a trash literature, but somehow into this trash slipped over fine lines um, puppet masters. Yeah, I read it and my eyes opened. The scales were removed from my eyes and I could see the kind of literature that I really wanted to read. And this was science fiction. Now I've read, of course, Bill Van and uh, H.G. Wells and so on, but this was different. This was new. This was dynamic. This was breathtaking. And the inventions in it, in it there were mind-boggling to me. You are listening to Geekdom in Powers. Welcome back to Geekdom in Powers. My name is Guy Hasson and Geekdom in Powers is where I try to highlight the less highlighted areas of geekitude from all around the world. One of the less looked upon and considered aspects of science fiction and fantasy literature is that of the translators, who translate all the books you know to other languages. By the way, we should probably cover television too. Uh, television translation, an idea I just had. There are so many things which are overlooked, but today we're talking about translating books. Today's guest is Emmanuel Lottem, one of the premier translators of the genre in Israel. Over the decades, he's translated some of the best classic books, and everyone and anyone who's grown up reading fantasy and science fiction in Israel have read his translations. He's also one of the driving forces behind the creation of the Israeli Society of Science Fiction and Fantasy, and served as its chairman for a few years. Recently, he and Sheldon Teitelbaum edited an anthology of science fiction and fantasy stories by Israeli authors, translated into English, called Science Fiction. We'll talk about that. We'll also talk about the retranslation of that into Japanese and the problems that offered. We cover that twice, in the beginning and then at the end. In this interview, we cover the translator's problems in translating from one language to another. As examples, we'll be given Frank Herbert's Dune and Lackey. And more, also, Emmanuel Lotten became part of a really big controversy with Tolkienists uh, when he retranslated Tolkien a couple of decades ago. And he talks about that in a truly honest and frank uh, way, which uh, is pretty touching and amazing and uh, human, you know. We are all human. Uh, he also talks about his early years of uh, falling in love with science fiction, about the dream of creating Armageddon Khan in Megiddo, the place of Armageddon. This was also addressed, like touched upon in a couple of sentences uh, in our last episode. One of my favorite parts uh, is when he talks about his thinking behind translating books. And I can't help but think how different it is from the approach of other translators, not all translators, some translators, and how that is the guiding force behind his decisions in everything he talks about, including uh, the Tolkien con uh, the controversy. 
So this conversation spans decades. I apologize for the sound quality, but I hope you bear through it. We will get our sound act better. Also, starting next uh, episode, everything will also be available in video and uh, we will be able to see it on YouTube. And uh, that's it. Enjoy. Enjoy this conversation. And bear through the sound, please. Thank you. Hello, Emmanuel Oten. Hello, good evening. How are you today? Fine, thank you. I good. don't take the English defeat too seriously. Don't take the what too seriously? The English defeat. Oh. <laughs> Who won? I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't watching. The Italians. Italians? Okay. Was it exciting or was it like uh, foreseen, easily foreseen? Oh, it was exciting. Uh, England is heartbroken as we speak. But, uh, okay, they'll get over it. I'm <laughs> sure they will. Um, so I wanted to ask you because I thought, you know, we're highlighting sides of science fiction and fantasy that usually isn't highlighted. And translation is usually left uh, out of view and people don't think about it too much. And you have uh, decades of experience doing it. And I thought maybe you would share some of your uh, crazier or strange, like, or stranger stories about translations over the years. Okay. Uh, one thing, uh, when you translate it into Hebrew, I mean, one problem is that Hebrew is a gendered language, thoroughly gendered. Meaning, we don't have a neuter gender, no it. Everything is either he or she. And uh, when you come across an it in science fiction, and you do that a lot, for instance, with respect to aliens, mm -hmm. uh, what do you do? I uh, translated the ancillary series by Anne Lackey, where uh, the uh, dominant language there in the world, uh, the universe is describing the dominant language as only one gender, female. So that's okay. Yeah, in Hebrew, you can translate everything in the feminine language. No problem at all. But then uh, there are other languages which are gendered. And her protagonist is uh, moving from one language to another. And then raises the question uh, what's the gender of the person she's speaking to? because uh, we have to know. And doesn't say so, so I wrote to Anne Lackey and asked her, what's the gender of this person? And she wrote back to me saying, I don't know. Which, uh, well, I was a little taken aback. I wrote her, explained the problem, and she said, no, I never assigned this person a gender. Uh, this person could be he or she or it, I don't care. 
Ritzlav being a bit of a quandary, but uh, won me a good friend in Anne Lackey. So all in all, I think I came uh, the better off this deal. But uh, you have such problems. But what did you do? How did you solve the problem? I, I managed to bypass the hurdle. Just, I call it a coward solution. I mean, transferring the problem to the readers. It's not a very nice thing to do, but sometimes you don't have a choice. And then, of course, there's another problem. Science fiction has a lot of invented words, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, English language is so rich, I don't believe there's a single person who knows all the words in English. I don't believe so. So when you come across a word, is it an invented one or just an obscure word which you never came across uh, until now? So I have to look at the dictionaries because those, in those days you didn't have online dictionaries, you didn't have online anything when I started uh, working. Uh, so I had this enormous Webster uh, dictionary, three very heavy volumes, which I always had to pull out, open, look into, close, only to pull out the next volume and open it again for another word. It was a bit of a rough ride. But I think that's a path of the course for any translation. Nothing to do with uh, science fiction, except that in science fiction you have a lot of in invented words. And the funny thing is that some of these words uh, get into the dictionaries eventually, like Ansible. Now, Ursula Le Guin invented it as a, uh, an instantaneous communication device. I think in modern uh, dictionaries you can find it. Orson Scott Card used it again in uh, the Ender uh, stories, the books. Yeah, that's a fun thing about uh, science fiction writers. They tend to use each other's inventions, Waldo's Einlein's invention. Uh, Ansible, uh, there are a few more cross-references, so to speak. Yeah, well, there's, um, did you, you're the one who uh, translated Dune, right? Right. And I remember I read the Dune the first time in Hebrew, not in English. And there are words in, which are Hebrew. He put the words in Hebrew. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, well, uh, Herbert took it from uh, Hebrew um, mythology, let's call it. Um, there are rabbinical stories about the uh, people who had Fitzat HaDerech, which, as you know, literally means jumping the road. Uh, and that's the ability uh, to transition from one place to another in no time at all. 
a slightly hyper-pitched uh, jump, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, there are stories about the very eminent rabbis who could uh, come to pray in Jerusalem in the evening and be back in the communities in Europe or in Yemen the next day. That fits out the direct. Herbert uses it in a slightly different way, uh, the ability to uh, see things that are hidden from uh, regular mortals. But uh, obviously, it was the same thing, even though it spelled it uh, in a very fun way. So I took it from there. He had a lot of Arabic terms, which I also uh, <clears throat> had to uh, more or less transliterate. So you translated okay. phonetically, or do you? Or did you translate the words? Did you write just no, I translated, I used the word, the Arabic word. Sometimes I had to correct uh, Herbert's grammar. <laughs> really? For instance, uh, the Reverend Mother is called Sayyidina. Sayyidina in Arabic means our master. Master, not mistress. So I changed it to say that no, which is our mistress, mm-hmm. and put it there. And uh, some kind of, some other words like that. But it all fits very well. I think Arabic fits very well with Hebrew. So it doesn't, it shouldn't be any problem to anybody. I, I remember there's, there's one story you told me, not about something you translated, by, uh, but about the project uh, Science Fiction, which recently was translated into uh, Japanese. Yes, in uh, Karen Landsman's Burn Alexandria, the protagonist is woken up uh, in the middle of the night. She is on guard duty. So, so she throws up everything as she can find, including a hijab. So we get a question from the uh, translator of uh, science fiction to Japanese, through his uh, uh, their agent to my agent and back to me. What is the meaning of a hijab? Because if it's worn for religious purpose, it's one. There's one way to translate it, and if it's just a uh, an item, an article of clothing, then it's another word. I, I don't know to this day what the difference could be, but to the Japanese uh, translator, it was important to know. So uh, I wrote to him that she's got an eclectic dresser and that's the thing she found to wear when she went out and uh, you shouldn't make any, uh, attach any significance to this. I hope he's satisfied. 
wait, there, there was also a thing about uh, uh, a story told by a robot, and so the use of the word I was problematic. Years ago, I started learning the language. I had to drop out. Didn't get uh, very much ahead. But apparently, uh, there are modes of speech. More differential, less differential, non-differential, uh, whatever. And the word I is used in some of them, but not in the others. So uh, what should we do with this? That was another question, I think. Uh, you know, every language has its own quirks, its own uh, idiosyncrasies, you may call it. And uh, when you jump from one to another, I don't believe that you have to give up. You know, this expression lost in translation, I don't believe in it. Lost in bad translation, of course. But you always can translate things so that nothing is lost. I believe so. I'm not saying that I always did it. But I believe it is possible. Yet, uh, you have to adapt yourself to uh, the language of translation. Adapt uh, whatever you read in the original. Read not in terms of words or sentences or paragraphs, but in, in terms of meaning. What is the author's uh, wish that we understand from this part, this sentence, these words. And uh, you know, the question to ask is, if he or she wrote it, wrote it in Hebrew, how would they do it? That's, uh, for instance, what guided me when I translated Tolkien. How would the Grand Master have written it had he done so in Hebrew? You know that uh, Tolkien knew Hebrew. He knew Hebrew? Yes, he translated uh, when the English Catholics decided that they need the new translation of the Bible, he translated the book of Jonah. Hmm. When the new Hebrew was enough to translate one of the books of the Bible, it's good enough. They yeah. never used it, almost never used it in his uh, legendarium. But that's a different story, uh, which in which I had a quite few, let's say, debates. Sometimes it got worse, but let's say debates. Mm -hmm. How did you choose to solve some of them? Like, what what are some of the problems that came from Lord of the Rings? Well. Uh, so, uh, you mean about Tolkien? Yes, about Tolkien. 
Well, he grows from a body of mythology and ancient writings that is uh, very distant from us. And on the other hand, should be familiar to any educated person in the West Central European uh, Scandinavian uh, region. As giants, fire-breathing dragons, all those were right and the mythologies and the story, folk stories, whatever, and had no counterparts in Hebrew. So when he uses a word like El, which every uh, child in English knew before he started writing about them, uh, what do they do with it? So one translator that came before me should call them the Bnei Daughters of Lilith. Um, Which means daughter, daughters uh, of Lilith. Children, children of Lilith. Yes. Right. Which to me was a completely unacceptable. Because Lilith in our mythology, as well as a, a uh, English Christian one, Lilith is the epitome of evil. And uh, children of Lilith, I once were in one of those debates, I translated uh, children of Lilith uh, into Sindarin as King Ungoliant. And they were very offended. You have to be a tokenist to understand uh, the significance. I won't get into that now. But uh, it was unacceptable to me. I chose a word in Hebrew which sounds similar, Elif, uh, for lack of a common term in our culture for these mythological creatures. They used all kinds of words. For instance, church, uh, sorry, Shakespeare has them in the Midsummer Night Dream. Uh, so uh, they were translated into Hebrew, but uh, not, not in a uh, very convincing way. I decided, all right, if you don't have a Hebrew term, don't use ju one just because you have it. Invent one. I did what he would have done had he done it in Hebrew. He wouldn't have drawn from the Hebrew tradition because he drew from another tradition altogether. So uh, that's the way to go about it. How how did you handle all the uh, criticism that you got from uh, the Tolkienists? Well, uh, I think 
nobody takes criticism well. Some people pretend they do, um, but if you look into their eyes, you see that they don't. Criticism, especially when it's a uh, done in a vicious way as some of the, my, uh, the criticism of my handling of Tolkien were uh, well they're bitter I once said about my critics the Tolkienians that uh, Tolkien was a gentleman but they are not and they were very seriously offended by that. Eventually, we decided to make peace and speak to each other's beliefs. beliefs. They uh, believe that the old translation of the Lord of the Ring is the better one. I obviously believe the other way around, and we speak to our views. Uh, it must have there been a tough resolution. time. Yeah. And there, there was a resolution in terms of personal uh, uh, relationship, but not in terms of how to translate Tolkien. Okay. D did you get to meet and know a lot of authors because you translated their works? Not a lot. Not a lot, uh, very few. I uh, told you about Anne Leckie. Mm -hmm. I met uh, her dad, a nice conversation once with a Carlton Scott Card. The most important to me was Larry Niven. First, mm -hmm. because I'm a great admirer of him, of his. I read, I believe everything is written. So um, I decided to invite him to Israel when I was chairman of the Israeli Society for Science Fiction and Fantasy. I had this fantasy, if you will, of celebrating the new millennium at Armageddon. We decided to organize a convention, which will climax with a party at Armageddon. That's a very long involved story. One thing was the date we chose, which was December 31, 2000, which is the true end of the millennium, not the 20, December 31. In 1999, mm -hmm. people don't uh, know how to count, believe so, but uh, we knew the date and the place was uh, able to host a party. And we started the organizing party, and then I invited LRM and he agreed to come. In October of 2000, began the second Intifada. And things got worse. You couldn't go across, you go, go through the main road to 
נגיד לו, ארמגדון, הוא היה נהוג מכל דאורי אצלר, It was dangerous and even cancelled and the other guests cancelled, so we cancelled the event. It was heartbreaking for me, it was two and a half years. But I still wanted to have Lauren Evan in Israel and then Barilan University had a convention on fantasy. And uh, they wanted me involved in the society. And I said, okay, but can you bring in a guest from America? And they said, what's the problem? Who is it? And I told them, who is it? And they brought him in. I met with him. And we had uh, quite a few fun days together. Became friends, I believe. And I was very happy about it. Other than him, well, I met, of course, Brian Aldis, who was in Israel in 1996, and was invited to launch the Israeli Society for Science and Fantasy in its opening convention. I was there, not in the convention, but Brian Oldis also had like a kind of a lecture. He was invited to a science fiction club in uh, Rehovot, and I was there. Yeah. Uh, it's very interesting. Yeah, well, there was then uh, the late Avon Shir, yes. his friends uh, had this club, and they uh, decided to disband, disband it after a society was established. I don't know why, I think it's tricky. But it was the decision. I was there in several occasions, yes. But uh, you asked about other things for me. That's just about it. They met uh, with a few of the uh, Others who were invited to the ICON convention occasionally. I didn't know many of them because I have this problem. I'm too deep rooted in the past. What do you mean? I I mean the golden age of Sanskrit. I hardly follow uh, really modern science fiction, I mean of the new century. I read very little, I know of very few authors, because I'm so grown back to the authors of the Golden Age, and perhaps the one generation later, authors like Larry Niven, also Scott Card, a CJ Cherry, who I believe is the best of the lot. So I can't take myself away from them and move on. I'm old. I'm an old man, 
and I um, do what all all men do uh, have in the past. How did you How did you get into science fiction? Well, it's a different story. Uh, I was young once, and when I was young, uh, in the uh, during my military service, let's begin earlier. I'm a very keen reader. Whenever I can lay my hands on a book, I read it, no matter what the circumstances. I may be a guest at the party, sit in a corner and read the book. Mm-hmm. And in the army, we had very, very few books, most of them very cheap, uh, fresh paperbacks, you know the term Roman Zaire. Uh, it was a fresh literature, but somehow into this fresh slipped over timelines um, puppet masters. Mm-hmm. I read it and my eyes open the scales were removed from my eyes and i could see the kind of literature that i really wanted to read and this was science fiction now i've read of course Jules Verne and the uh, H.G. Wells and so on but this was different this was new this was dynamic this was breathtaking and the inventions in it, you know, there were mind-boggling to me. Okay, so I started looking for other things that bear the stamp of science fiction and could hardly find any. It was terrible. Mm-hmm. As well, I'm talking about the early 60s, there was no, uh, hardly any science fiction. In frustration. And then in 1970, I came to England for my studies. And then I realized that all you have to do to get a good science fiction was just go up to the, around the corner to the nearest WH Smith and you can get everything you want, everything you could afford. I was a broke student. I, but, uh, okay, so I started reading science fiction, and since then, we are talking about uh, 50 years or more, I hardly read anything not science fiction except for work. You were hooked since then, you got the virus. I got the virus uh, way back in the early 60s. Still carry, although I must confess, uh, within my family, I haven't been a very good day spreader of the disease. Uh-huh. My two sons occasionally read books that I translated. I ever sent it more as a courtesy to me than as a genuine interest. My grandchildren, none of them is interested. 
So I have this huge library. I don't want to move the camera and scan it, the camera mm -hmm. and scan it. But I have this huge library that, uh, well, I don't know what's going to become of it when I'm past. And hopefully it's in a long time. Thank so, you. So, let's skip ahead to the present. In Zion's fiction, and you took on the task, uh, you and Sheldon Tinklebaum took on the task of uh, creating uh, a book containing stories and novellas and novelettes of uh, Israeli science fiction writers. Right. Can you tell a little about that, but also in the context of what is it like to read them uh, okay. in the context of what uh, you said? Let me, uh, okay, let's start with uh, the establishment of the society, which I mentioned earlier. Uh, in order to register as a non-for-profit organization, we had to have a chart of objectives. And one objective that I listed there was to encourage uh, creators and writers of science fiction in Hebrew. And at the time, I'm not talking uh, not long ago, 1996, there was hardly any, hardly any at all. I don't know when you started writing yourself, Guy. Was it before that? I. My first book was published in 2001, but I started writing, like, my first book was six, uh, seven uh, years earlier than that. Yeah. Um, so, at the time, uh, this looked, I won't say like a pipe dream, but as a very long-term objective. Mm -hmm. to have a uh, core of Israeli science fiction writers. There were some stories uh, published a decade earlier in Fantasia 2000. Very few of them are uh, up to an international standard. Let's put it this way. And then, uh, in the early 2000s and on, uh, grew up a generation of talented, imaginative, resourceful writers, women and men, more women than men, I believe, I, who write wonderful science fiction. And I was aware of it. I didn't think to do anything about it until my friend from very old days of Fantasia, 2000, Sheldon Teitelbaum, suddenly appears on my Skype screen. And when he introduced himself, I didn't recognize him. I asked what do I do all the pleasure, and he says two words, science fiction. I say, what? 
and says that's fiction, an anthology of Israeli science fiction translated into English. And I said, what? Where can you get it? And I said, you don't get it, we make it. Okay, so he sold me on the idea immediately, and we started uh, collecting stories, including one of yours. And we had a very fine collection, I believe, which was finally published in 2018. And the reviews were fantastic. I mean, uh, it's in serious places. Locus Magazine was enthusiastic. Asimov amazing science fiction. All those, a, uh, <clears throat> oh, every, every uh, place where which we used everything that we used to read once, now we're hitting praise on our anthology, on our authors, It didn't, unfortunately, translate into sales. I don't know why, mm -hmm. but it didn't. That's a fact, a very sad fact to me. So uh, we had some problems in publishing volume two, but we are going to overcome them. Volume two is uh, virtually ready. Made some kind of little touches to be ready for print, where it remains to be seen. But we have a launch date, and since you're one of the authors in this volume as well, let me invite you immediately on Thursday, September 23rd, 4 in the afternoon at ICON. We're going to launch more science fiction, wondrous tales from the Israeli imagination. Nice. Very nice. I didn't know there was a, uh, the launch was uh, in Icon. Okay. Well, that's a technicality. They asked me uh, to wait with publishing it because it's not yet completely finalized. Mm -hmm. this, I mean, the schedule is not uh, finalized. Let's wait a little. You would have got uh, your invitation uh, sure. as soon as I get the final uh, confirmation of the date. I'm sure. But, how, but there's also been a translation, which we talked about, of science fiction to Japanese. Yeah. To Japanese, as a wonder. Again, most of the uh, reviews were very enthusiastic. I don't have any idea at the moment about the sales. I mean, they're supposed to report to us in a few weeks, I believe. But uh, I didn't hear from them yet on that. 
How, how, how did that happen? Go with translated reviews. Yes. <laughs> it is. Uh, I know. Let me just give you one instance. Uh, Karen's uh, Boom Alexandria occasionally comes in translation as Bake Alexandria. Bake Alexandria? Bake. Okay. Japanese. Maybe. Maybe it's a double meaning. I know that about my uh, novella, The Perfect Girl, in one review, they kept speaking about how um, how she obeys the parents, how submit, submissive, that's what, how submissive she is, the woman there, who is not at all submissive. Yeah. There, is no, there is no one there who is that type of uh, person. Okay, there's a cultural difference, uh, which I think translating into or from Japanese is more difficult after all than English or other European language. It's not the same culture, but it's close enough. Japanese seem to be too different. Uh, one of your translation was uh, the good daughter. Yes. Or, or something. Maybe like that's that. why. Maybe that's. Uh, you just read the title uh, and thought she was really submissive. Uh, apparently. If you uh, say in Japanese uh, the girl is perfect, it has some connotations that wouldn't have occurred to anyone in Western culture. I didn't think of that, but that could be, yes. Yeah, that could be, but uh, okay, uh, you have to live with it. Mm -hmm. uh, Living in a multicultural world. Sure. And, uh, I can tell you a story, a crazy story about um, translating and translating back. I know a guy who bought uh, from Stephen Zontheim, the uh, famous uh, uh, playwright, is in the right world. He writes, uh, My brain is dead. Um, <laughs> he took into the world. Look, of his claims, uh, which is very complex. It's got the songs that are really, really, his, his use of language is really, really uh, tight and hard and he uses double meanings and uses the sounds of words. And he gave the rights to translate it to Hebrew. But then one of his uh, terms was, after the translation, someone needs to translate the translation into English so we can read it, which I thought was crazy. Um, uh, that was done and he approved, but it's really oh, there are many stories about it, many jobs, you know. Um, uh, in the uh, CIA School of Russian, one half of the class has to translate a phrase from a sentence from English to Russian. The other half of the class has to retranslate it back into English. As far as all, one of the sentences was a verse from the New Testament. The spirit 
is willing, but the flesh is weak. Uh -huh. And it came back retranslated from Russian, the vodka was good, but the meat was lousy. Wow. <laughs> okay, this kind of, okay, this kind of jokes, uh, well, the, <laughs> something translators uh, have to live with. Looking at uh, other people's errors is perhaps fun, but uh, then you have to remember that other people are looking at your errors. Listen, thank you very much for your time and for the stories. Thank you for having me. What nice. Thank you. It was very nice having you. Thank you very much for listening to another episode of Geek Demin Powers. And thank you for Emmanuel Lotten for sharing uh, his thoughts and history with us. Next time, we will have a very lively conversation with Cristina Jurado about, well, I'm not going to tell you. It is going to be very lively, and I promise you'll enjoy it. If you want to email me, email guy.hasson, that's G-U-I dot H-A-S-S-O-N, like N, like uh, Never Neverland, at geekdemimpowers.com. Check out our website, geekdemimpowers.com. Our Twitter and Instagram are both at geekdemimpowers, no hyphens or spaces. TikTok is coming, LinkedIn is coming. I will see you next time. Have an empowered day.